Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Amo Ergo Sum, I Love, Therefore I Am. And it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 5th, 2006. From the time he was seven years old, Will Campbell wanted to be a preacher. After ordination at the age of 17, for 20 years he devoted himself to the civil rights movement based upon his understanding of the gospel, and he had few peers. In 1957, for example, he was one of four people who escorted the nine black students to integrate Little Rock Central High School, and he was the only white person to attend the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference by the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr., but something, he said, was amiss. As he matured, Campbell discovered how readily he hated those who hated, how easy it was to oppress the oppressors. Strange, he thought, how he enjoyed thinking that God hated all the same people that he hated. He had the uneasy feeling that he had created God in his own image and after his likeness. Through a series of encounters with unlikely teachers, Campbell came to admit that after 20 years in ministry, he had become little more than what he calls a doctrinaire social activist. He had subverted the indiscriminate love of God for all people without conditions, limits, or exceptions into a ministry of what he called liberal sophistication. Acting upon these convictions, Campbell started sipping whiskey with the KKK, he befriended the Grand Dragon of North Carolina, J.R. Bob Jones, and at that point, as you might well imagine, the hate mail started coming from the left instead of from the right. Campbell's mistake was to define the gospel by the civil rights movement instead of vice versa. For William Sloan Coffin, the struggle was against the idolatry of academia. As chaplain at Yale University, Coffin observed how students at Yale thought that cogito ergo sum, Descartes' famous I think, therefore I am, was what it was all about, and Yale encouraged them to think like that. But like Campbell, Coffin wanted to keep the main thing the main thing. Coffin writes, I felt very deeply that it is amo ergo sum. I love, therefore I am. People, of course, define themselves, shape their identities, and create their personas in any number of ways. Campbell's social liberalism or Coffin's struggle with academic, academic idolatry are only two examples. Some people define themselves by the intensity of their work and the accumulation of their wealth. For others, sports, politics, environment, sexual identity, ethnicity, or even their alma mater is what, what matters to them most. These identity markers then become ways that we categorize, exclude, and stereotype people. She's a techie brainiac. He's a nerd. They're liberal. We're conservative. And on it goes. They have also have their dark or downside. Sexual identity is a deeply human and powerful trait, but by itself, it's reductionistic. 
Ethnicity, to take another example, is a legitimate source of pride, but also the source of toxic hatred and even genocide. Hard work is admirable, but life is far bigger. According to Jewish rabbinic tradition, there are 613 commandments in the five books of Moses. In Mark's Gospel for this week, an expert in the law put an obvious question to Jesus. Are some of these laws more important than others? Which laws are peripheral and insignificant, and which ones are weighty and essential? What exactly defines our greatest good? These laws encompass nearly every aspect of being human. Birth, death, sex, gender, health, economics, jurisprudence, social relations, hygiene, marriage, agricultural, clothing, and certainly ethnicity, for Gentiles were automatically considered impure. The purity laws of Leviticus chapters 11 to 26, for example, instructed the Hebrew community about clean and unclean foods, purity rituals after childbirth or menstrual cycle, regulations for skin infections that contaminated clothing or furniture, prohibitions against contact with a human corpse or a dead animal, instructions about nocturnal emissions, laws regarding bodily discharges, guidelines for planting seeds and mating animals, and decrees about lawful sexual relationships, keeping the Sabbath, forsaking idols, and even tattoos. Of all the many ways that people might define themselves, though, whether by social liberalism, academia, or one of the 613 commandments, Jesus responded that the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6.4 The second is this, said Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Leviticus 19 verse 18 the questioner liked Jesus' answer and affirmed that these two commands were, quote, more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, more important, we might say, than the 611 other commandments. The necessary connection between claiming to love God and demonstrating that we love our fellow human beings became so embedded in the early Christian traditions that we find this teaching repeated almost verbatim by Paul, by James, and most memorably by John. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. About a century after Mark wrote, the early Christians had a well-known and well-deserved reputation for social generosity that built, built bridges of community rather than walls of separation. Tertullian, who lived from 155 to 220, for example, wrote, Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign before the enemy. See, they say, how they love one another, and how ready they are to die for each other.
But then something went badly wrong for a large portion of the institutional church. In his review of Christopher Tireman's massive new book, God's War, A New History of the Crusades, Eamon Duffy comments on the profound and deeply disturbing paradox of how the good news of God's indiscriminate love became a cause for violent hatred. In the Crusades, Catholics sanctified the slaughter of pagans, Muslims, Jews, and then in the Fourth Crusade, even their fellow Christians when they sacked Constantinople in 1204. Engagement in a holy war, writes Duffy, sanctified the very activity which had before been a barrier to heaven. Here from the highest spiritual authority on earth, the Pope, was a call not merely to guiltless violence, but to meritorious violence. Later, of course, Protestants unleash violent forces that perhaps nobody could have predicted. Estimates vary, but the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648 decimated Central Europe with disease, famine, and war that brought early death to about 15 to 20 percent of the population. Barbarism and butchery in the name of God. Watching the new documentary film called Jesus Camp brought to mind Duffy's depiction of so-called meritorious violence. The film Jesus Camp features the Pentecostal children's minister Becky Fisher of Missouri. But by including footage of Ted Haggard, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, the film directors clearly intend to include the 30 million people of the Christian right. I physically squirmed in my seat watching these people redefine the gospel in endless ways. Young Earth, Intelligent Design, Abortion, global warming, Harry Potter, homeschooling, and fidelity to George Bush. Except for the one thing that Jesus said mattered most, loving your neighbor as yourself. I'm not sure that I could make nice with the KKK like Will Campbell, or that what Will Campbell did was either good or wise. But I sense that he was pointed in the right direction a direction commended by St. Maximus the Confessor, who lived in the 6th and 7th centuries. Maximus wrote, Blessed is the one who can love all people equally, always thinking good of everyone. Given my visceral reaction to Jesus' camp, I clearly have a long way to go and a lot of room for improvement. And now for further reflection. Consider the ways that we displace the central command to love our neighbors with peripheral concerns. Second, in what sense have social liberals like Campbell and conservatives like Becky Fisher made the same mistake? Third, what are some of the legitimate concerns of the Christian right? And finally, for further reflection, see the book by Kenneth Chase and Alan Jacobs, entitled, Must Christianity Be Violent? Reflections on History, Practice, and Theology. 
For books this week, I review a book called Exploring Protestant Traditions, An Invitation to Theological Hospitality by W. David Bushart, Downers Grove, University Press, 2006, 373 pages. In the introduction to this book that deserves a wide readership, theologian David Bushart recounts a conversation with his mother when he was about 10 years old, the gist of which was that whereas his buddies were Catholic, Presbyterian, and Methodist, his mother described his family as quote-unquote just Christians. That succinct description had its merits, and it satisfied Bushart in some important ways for some time. But later he began to observe a troubling pattern. Why all the many denominations if there was one gospel? How were they similar and how were they different? Even more troubling, why did nearly every Christian tradition try to occupy an ecclesiastical or spiritual high ground as the genuine descendants of Jesus in the New Testament church? Unlike, of course, all those posers and wannabes. Bushart's book addresses those and similar questions for eight Protestant traditions, Lutheran, Anabaptist, Reformed, Anglican, Baptist, Wesleyan, Dispensational, and Pentecostal. After introducing each chapter with a personal experience of the tradition under consideration, Bushart traces their historical origins and later development, where they came from, He explains how they do theology, theological and hermeneutical method, and then presents two characteristic beliefs or doctrines. He quotes copiously from each tradition's own sources, letting them speak for their own selves. The 80 pages of footnotes are a goldmine for further reading. He differentiates, as far as possible, the main unifying core of a given tradition but also the diverse voices within a tradition. Not all Lutherans or Baptists believe exactly the same, for example, even though they enjoy a shared heritage. The end of each chapter includes a brief bibliography for further reading. Bushart writes to describe and to affirm, not to convert, defend, or attack. Only in his concluding epilogue does he tip his hand and explain very briefly where he agrees and disagrees with each of the eight traditions. By cultivating the virtue of theological hospitality, we welcome traditions different from our own into our lives with the express intent of learning from them. Modesty about our own theological conclusions, the particularities of our own faith tradition, in the limited horizons of our own views, all remind us of the importance of affirming those who are different from us. In a concluding chapter, Bushart makes a case for the fundamental validity and importance of both preserving the unity of the church and celebrating its diversity. His book will help all of us move beyond stereotypes to a spirit of generosity that can only strengthen the church. Exploring Protestant Traditions, An Invitation to Theological Hospitality by W. David Bushart. For film this week, I review a Brazilian movie called Middle of the World.
from the year 2003. Which is more important, the journey or the destination? Romayo is an illiterate and unemployed man with a wife and five kids, but he believes in destiny. My true destiny is on the road, he tells anyone who would stop him from taking his family of seven on a six-month, 2,000-mile bicycle journey from the heart of Brazil to Rio de Janeiro. There, he believes, he will find work so that he can feed his family. People think he's crazy, of course, including his own family. They panhandle, do odd jobs, sing songs at restaurants, meet people both evil and good, and sleep in abandoned buildings and rusted-out buses. But they love each other deeply and experience many life lessons, especially the adolescent Antonio, who is turning into a young man. This film, based upon a true story, as the saying goes, won at least five festival awards, all of them deserved, in my opinion. Middle of the World, in Portuguese, with English subtitles. And finally this week, we've posted a marvelous poem by George MacDonald, who lived from 1824 to 1905. The title of the poem is A Prayer for the Past. All sights and sounds of day and year, all groups and forms, each leaf and gem, are thine, O God, nor will I fear to talk to thee of them. Too great thy heart is to despise, whose day girds centuries about. From things which we name small, thine eyes see great things looking out. Therefore the prayerful song I sing may come to thee in ordered words. Though lowly born, it need not cling in terror to its cords. I think that nothing made is lost, that not a moon has ever shone that not a cloud my eyes hath crossed, but to my soul is gone. That all the lost years garnered lie in this thy casket, my dim soul, and thou wilt once the key apply and show the shining hole. But were they dead in me, they live in thee, whose parable is time and worlds and forms, all things that give me thoughts in this my rhyme. Father, in joy our knees we bow. This earth is not a place of tombs. We are but in the nursery now, they in the upper rooms. For are we not at home in thee, in all this world a vision show, that knowing what abroad is, we what home is to may know. A Prayer for the Past by George MacDonald. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 5th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.